0: Welcome to the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown. Today I'll be talking with the author of Escaping Jurassic Government, How to Recover America's Lost Competence. The book is published this year by Brookings Press and the author is Donald Kettle. I have the real pleasure to have Don on the phone right now. Don, how are you doing today? I'm
1: doing great, Heath, and it is great to be with you.
0: Yeah, it's such a pleasure to have read the book, a book that fits into a lot of what I teach about and think about, and you have put a career into working on. Before we get to what's in this brand new book, uh, maybe you could just tell us a little bit more about yourself. Um, You know, give give us a little sense of where you are now and and the important parts of where you've been in the past. Sure thing, I'm
1: currently a professor of public policy at the University of Maryland, former dean here of the School of Public Policy. In addition to that, I have a couple of other affiliations that include a non-resident senior fellow position at the Partnership for Public Service, at the Brookings Institution and the Volcker Alliance, and I'm spending most of my time these days both trying to, to translate what we know about politics and policy for a broader audience, but also trying to degree that I can work with people inside government to try to help improve the quality of government programs. So it's an effort to try to make that bridge work back and forth. It really is the core of my work these days.
0: Yeah, and so you're sitting right at the edge of Washington, D.C. with this great vantage point on what's going on. And let's just start with the title of your interesting new book. What does it mean to have a Jurassic government? Let's, let's go to the start here. What, what is a Jurassic government? What, what do you mean by that?
1: The problem that increasingly I've been worried about is the, the fact that government increasingly is having a hard time being able to do what it is we expect government to do. The the dinosaurs in the Jurassic period went extinct because when new things happened, whether it was an asteroid coming in from outer space or problems in the climate that took away the food supply, they simply failed to adapt. And when they failed to adapt, they went extinct. And my worry has been that the same thing could happen to our government, that unless government can succeed in adapting to the new challenges that it faces, that it too could end up going the, the way of the dinosaurs. And I don't mean that just figuratively. There's a very real problem that in terms of trust in government and in our institutions and in our ability to perform, we face some fairly serious issues and a major crisis out there that we simply have got to find a much smarter way of responding to.
0: Now, you write at the very start of the book about what you describe as a simple fact. You write, we have lost our commitment to competency. Now, before we get to our current somewhat sorry state of affairs, I wonder if you could describe for us briefly the the consensus of the earlier time period, uh, what you describe as the one hundred and thirty years of government consensus that that is before the, our our the, the period we're in right now. would you would you take us a, on a, a walk through this time period? Sure, and
1: it really is the fact that the progressives, and by this I don't mean big government, liberal democrat left-wing government, but really the kind of government that we established that was designed to make government professional at the end of the 19th century. We had this consensus that we, we might fight like cats and dogs about what government ought to do, but we had a strong and overwhelming consensus shared by both Democrats and Republicans that whatever it is that government did, it had a responsibility to do well, to do professionally and to do with the highest levels of competence. We had both Democrats and Republicans pursuing that. We had the creation of everything from the Food and Drug Administration, the Federal Reserve, to uh, a tax system that was designed to try to tax income, creation of federal budget process. In fact, you look over that 130-year history from the late 19th century to about the 1960s and 1970s, there really was this commitment on both sides and the part of both parties that whatever we did, we ought to do well. But bit by bit by bit, both parties became complicit in an effort to really undermine that commitment to competence. Democrats tended to overreach and go into programs that may have been good ideas, but for which they didn't really think very hard about how to administer. Republicans tended to grudgingly accept those programs that Democrats pushed through, but then tried to undermine their administration later on. So we've seen, on the one hand, this bipartisan commitment to competence, that gradually eroded to a bipartisan commitment to a, a kind of ideology that undermined our ability to do what it is that government ought to do and we expect it to do. And that's a, a in my mind, a very dangerous and very bad thing that is a kind of fundamental dishonesty between the parties and citizens because we we create programs and create governments and elect officials and the expectation that they get something done. But their comp, their commitment to this competence in government has sadly eroded, I'm afraid, over the the last generation or so.
0: Now, of late, as you just sort of allude to, this issue of the size of government has become deeply politicized. Uh, But you argue in your book that it is nearly impossible to truly cut the size of government in the way that it's often presented. Why is this the case? Talk about some of the issues of scale and and what these kinds of cuts are might actually look like?
1: A large part of this is the fact that even though we really fight like crazy over government and almost everybody believes government's too big, there's almost nothing that government does that we could really develop a strong consensus for doing away with. We don't like waiting in lines at airports for TSA to x-ray our luggage and x-ray us for that matter, but nobody wants to see terrorists have access to planes. We complain about the... Red tape that comes along with food and with prices that end up shooting up as a result of what it is that manufacturers have to go through. But we all expect food to be safe. We expect that we're going to get good weather forecasts that tell us when bad things may be about to happen. We expect that the federal government is going to treat us fairly on the tax system. We expect Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, start looking down the list of programs. We may think the government's too big in the abstract, but most of us don't want to do without the government in the practical that we're actually getting. So the problem is we can talk in theory about cutting back on government, but we really can't have much consensus over what government we want to eliminate because most of us have gotten used to the government that we're getting. And that even goes for the small government people who want to slash government, except, of course, when it comes to affect them in their neighborhoods. And then, as is almost always the case, no government's really big enough or fast enough to try to solve the problems that are right at their doorsteps.
0: Now, instead, you argue that for those who have grown frustrated with government, uh, whomever they are, it may be better to focus on people. Uh, how do federal employees enter into this debate about the competence of government?
1: And they enter in two ways. and. In- Part, they are the symbol of government size. Wrongly, I think, and as I argue in the book, but we tend to think of big government in terms of the number of people who work for government. But in fact, at the federal level in particular, the number of government employees has been relatively stable since the 1960s. And in fact, we have fewer government employees now than we had back in the Kennedy administration, even though both the amount of government spending and the size of the population has exploded in the meantime. So we end up having... The symbol of big government, which in fact hasn't really grown, even though government has. And at the same time, the quality of the services that we get from government really depends on the quality of the people who manage them. And that's, this is everything from people who are in charge of, of managing the contracts that supply Medicare and Medicaid on the one side to the people who are in charge of air traffic control and Social Security on the other. When everybody was complaining at the beginning of the summer about long lines. At airports for airport security, the real question was, how many government employees did we have, and how good of a job were they doing in screening people? So we we have this paradox that we think government is too big, but at the same size, same and the same manner that the size of government employment hasn't grown at the federal level. We talk about the need to try to improve the way the government works, but that really hinges on the quality of government employees that we just don't like to talk about or invest much in. So we find ourselves trapped in these paradoxes that really in some ways trap us in the problem of government performance that we then turn around and complain and criticize.
0: So what's ahead for the country? You suggest four different possible paths. Uh, What are they?
1: Well, the the four paths that we look at are a set of alternative futures that the country could face that uh, we can think about the things that really are going to matter most. One is to what degree are we going to rely more or less on evidence for being able to decide what it is that the country ought to look like and how we're going to make decisions? Are we going to think more, study more, learn more, know more about what it is that works and what doesn't? And at the same time, are we going to rely more or less in what I call interweaving of government? That is, government's reliance on state and local governments, for-profit, government, for profit organizations to actually deliver government services. And so if you look at those two things, either more or less evidence, more or less interweaving, there are essentially four different scenarios that one could imagine. You could imagine a government that really, truly is weakened and that follows some of the conservative ideology where interweaving is less. We cut government back. We invest less in evidence. We just simply trim government back. And that doesn't seem very likely for all the reasons that we've just been discussing, because there's very little that government does that people want to do without. Uh, One could imagine an empowered government, where we rely much more on evidence and we rely, though, less on non-governmental actors to deliver goods and services. This is really an argument that John Diulio has been making very powerfully about trying to pull more of government back inside. But again, for all the reasons that we've discussed, we just don't like government bureaucrats. We don't like to hire more government bureaucrats. So building the political case for that is much harder. Uh, A third alternative is what I call muscle-bound government, which is less reliance on evidence because we don't want to invest in the kind of policy analysis that's required, but continuing the pace of this interweaving of relying more on the private sector and the nonprofit sector for doing our work. That, I'm afraid, would make government more muscle bound by essentially piling on more responsibilities without having the capacity for it to be able to deliver well, which really leads, I think, to the the fourth and probably the, the, the only really strong contender out there. Which is what I call leveraged government, a government where we accept the fact that we have a lot of interweaving and we're going to continue that. But at the same time, we rely much more on evidence and information to try to make government work better. We, we learn what it is that we have succeeded in doing in the past and we do more of it. We track very closely the performance of government on a day to day basis so we can address problems while they're still small and correctable. And by putting all that together, we have a government that leverages its power. Through those who actually act on its behalf, and then create a government that, in the end, is more effective. And I describe this in more detail in the book. But you really look at some of these alternatives, and a lot of the things that we talk about in terms of the public rhetoric, in terms of the big public discussion, probably constitute alternatives that are not very real or likely. And the challenge is trying to figure out then how to move on from there.
0: Now, the the direction you expect, which you have just sort of alluded to. Uh, is the the more optimistic direction why are you so optimistic there's such cynicism uh, among many of those that that look closely at at the federal government uh, but you remain optimistic what what is the the root what is the root of your optimism about the direction forward
1: and the optimism is really based in in two things one is a kind of realization of the fact that just about everyone I think has come to accept the fact that the the path that we're on is not good for anybody. It doesn't satisfy liberals or conservatives. It doesn't satisfy people like big government or small government. It doesn't solve many of the needs of most of the citizens often enough. And so we're on a path that nobody thinks is really sustainable and that at some point really requires a more aggressive action to try to find ways of making that work better. And the other thing is that there are there's lots of signs that governments are getting most much smarter, much more effective, much more clever at using evidence and information to try to improve the ways in which they operate. And this happens all the way from from the grassroots where there are a hundred medium-sized cities out there that have developed very aggressive data systems to track what they're doing, to the federal government where there has been an incredibly impressive effort in the last four or five years to attack the problem of homelessness among veterans and where the federal government, through a database partnership connecting programs involving Veterans Affairs and housing and other things, have made a huge dent in what had been an enormous crisis for a long time of homelessness among vets. So we've proven we can do it. We know that we want to do it. The things that we expect government to do and for which we're very ha- unhappy if government doesn't do it. So. Uh, can we get our heads around this and make this happen? I'm, I'm optimistic because I've seen it happen. But I'm, I'm on the other hand, uh, absolutely and positively uh, no Pollyanna about this because I realize how hard it is. But but frankly, for me, it's pretty hard even to imagine what the alternative is going to be. And we don't want to be in a situation 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, 30 years from now where we are in a situation where we wish that back in the teens and the 20s, we had taken advantage of the opportunities when we had them.
0: Some of this it seems like in, in your writing uh is, is related to the way in which the media covers the government, that is the often the government's failures. I wonder in in closing here if you could talk a little bit about that. That is the the role that the media plays has played, but also the way in which they might play a role in, in, in nudging uh the country in the right direction rather than in the wrong do- direction, which is seems like They've been doing in the recent past. So, so would you would you close with, with just a little bit on on that side of the, the the book?
1: Yeah, exactly. And it's it's a tough challenge because we all realize that, and we in fact feed and abetted ourselves. We, we like the kind of weird and the crazy stuff, and it's a variant of the cats playing piano keys kind of syndrome that we all fall into. Uh, there's the stuff that's the routine, the stuff that works, that becomes the stuff that we don't pay much attention to. Um, Most of us did not get up this morning and see a headline in the paper saying mail delivered yet again today or Mm -hmm. tens of millions of Social Security recipients cash their checks or uh, people over 65 have vastly better life expectancies because of Medicare. We, We just don't celebrate or even in some cases see the successes that government produces because in a lot of ways. I mean, after all, what, we we pay our taxes, we figure we're already paying for it, you want applause for doing your job? Well, that's not going to happen. And at the same time, we pay attention to the, to, the, to the wild, the crazy, the scandals, the outrageous, and the media do it because it's what we watch. And in some ways, we shouldn't expect anything different because this is what it is that for a long time has fed the media back, in fact, to the revolutionary days as well, where we had a lot of the same kinds of problems. But at the same time, What we have now is an an evolving set of challenges that have to do with figuring out how to make government work, how to improve our trust in public institutions and how to have government do what it is we want it to do. And the, the next opportunity that faces us and in fact challenges the media is finding ways of improving the ways in which all of us as citizens connect with the government through the media which really mediate that conversation. So there are opportunities for finding out more about what's really happening by talking about the, the, the basic blocking and tackling of government and the way in which it works, and the increasing challenge of making sure that it works well. And I, I would, I guess, challenge our listeners to, to watch the evening news uh, two times in the next week and find the number of times where some problem will come up that it either involves here's government doing what it is we expect government to do, or a challenge about why it is that government's not responding more quickly. And we see that over and over and over again. And we all need to, and especially the media in particular need to, connect the dots between what we expect from government and the way that government is responding. So often we see these problems that we hope the government will respond to, and we don't really see government's fingerprints on it. And given the fact that so much of government now is indirect through this process of interweaving that I describe, it's it's harder and harder to see it, but more and more important. And that's one of the most important things that the media can do, helping us both be better citizens and helping us to do that by making these connections.
0: Again, the book is Escaping Jurassic Government, How to Recover, America's Lost Competence. The book is published by Brookings Press this year. The author is Donald Kettle. Don, thank you so much for your time today. It's so great to be with you, Heath.